we were trying to get in America all the time. Uh, Please Please Me became a hit. We sent it over to Capitol Records, which EMI owned, and said, can you please release this record? And they said, sorry, it wouldn't mean anything in this country. And we were a bit disappointed, but well, well they should really know their own market. We, we're only English, we don't really know. And then when the second record came out, we said, will you try this one? You know, this, this is a good one. You know, you guys really don't know how to make American records. I'm afraid it's not very good. I really thought She Loves You would have broken the American. But if you think of our frustration here, um, we were being turned down by the company, which EMI actually owned. And I was so frustrated by that. So I, I said, well, if they're not going to let us, if they're not going to put it out, um, we'll, they can't deny us other people putting them out. So I would then take the record back from them and try and get it out with another label. And I did negotiations with Swan and with VJ, each of whom, very tiny labels in the States, took one or the other titles. And they put those records out in America. And, of course, being small labels, they didn't make a great deal of... Uh, of of um, success. So Marsha Albert of Dublin Drive of Silver Spring has the honor of introducing something brand new and exclusive here at WWDC. Marsha, the microphone here on the Carol James Show is yours. Ladies and gem- gentlemen, for the first time on the air in the United States, here are the Beatles singing I Want to Hold Your Hand. Welcome this week's Spoon Leader's Fab. I'm Ed Chin. And I'm John Stone. First off, welcome to all the folks who enjoyed the uh, New York, New Jersey Beetle Fest last week, the Fest for Beatles fans. Yeah, hope you had a good time. You had to have had. Second off, picking up from last week, the official name of the instrument Linda McCartney was playing in the Unplugged special is an Indian harmonium. So you, you were right, that is some sort of bellows in front of her. Yeah, and you know, when I thought more about it, I recall seeing a George Harrison performance. It might have been when he was with John Fuglesang, I don't know, but there was somebody playing that. Yeah, it may well have come from George or through George. Yeah. Now, the big news for the week, revealed on the BBC, there is a tape from the Stowe School almost exactly 60 years ago today. April the 4th, 1963. That is exactly, isn't it? For us, as we're recording it, that is exactly 60 years ago. It was 60 years ago today. 
<laughs> Yet again, something exists that we had no inkling was out there. You know, which makes sense in a way because they were a phenomenon and everybody was in their business, taking pictures, taking whatever they could. It's out there. But the point is, not quite yet. It was fairly early on. You know, we're talking about just as For Me to You was being released and the Please Please Me album was all of a week old. Somebody had to be the original fans. And when you consider that it it was a weird way it was set up because it was by uh, the contract was with a boy, actually, from the school and not the school. The boy is someone who comes from a fairly substantial family. The Moores family, a name familiar to us because, well, Stewart won the Moores Prize, which gave him the money to buy the base. Maybe there's a connection there. We've got the the first letter which is um, a reply to Dave Moores. And, and Dave, Dave Moores comes from the, the, the family in Liverpool. The, the John you know, Moores family. John Moores, Littlewood. Little so they're a well-established family. And, and my guess is that Brian Epstein knew exactly who was writing to him. Mm. So the letter is, is, is addressed to Dave Moores, dirty of January 1963. And he says, many thanks for your letter. It would be a great pleasure for the boys to appear at Stowe, but I must advise you that they are heavily booked and I cannot make much allowance with regard to their fee. However, I I am prepared to arrange a midweek appearance for a fee of £100. Yours sincerely, Brian Epstein. Brian was very nice. David Moores, uh, who was a student at the school, wrote to him, and he was from Liverpool, obviously, so he knew of the Beatles. He's off here at boarding school with a room full of boys, and it's like, you know, let's do something fun. And a hundred pounds was not insignificant. Brian said, We can give you a little bit of a discount, but not too much. It's going to cost you a hundred pounds to get them booked. That was almost $300 back then, and that was back then. The famous story is that in 1961, John Lennon got a hundred pounds for his 21st birthday from his aunt and uncle, and that's the money that they then took off to Paris with. That was enough to get John and Paul to Paris and keep them in the City of Lights for close to a week. And get new haircuts. And so here's this 15 or 16-year-old boy who was like, oh, okay, yeah, I can do that. Reading the story, it reminded me, and here's a plug, there was this saying that the Beatles used to have, toppermost of the poppermost. I think I've heard that somewhere before. Nudge, nudge. And the fact was, in reading the story, you know, the Beatles had a few setbacks here and there, but they were very, very few. So the fact that there was even a saying that they had about toppermost or the poppermost is weird because it was pretty much an upward trajectory their entire career. And so the impact that they had on fans goes way back. So, you know, the Beatles were doing theater tours mostly and they were second bill i mean this was after the chris montez and tommy Rowe tour the next letter is on the uh, the 9th of february brian epstein goes on to say that the band are booked on the 4th of april in fact they were really busy they were in the middle of a touring schedule in the morning they were recording for the bbc they were in the paris studios on on regent street when they had days that they could play their own show they were playing shows to audiences of about this size and so when they were on the theater tour 
they typically got a half hour at the front and the end of each set, and their full shows were about an hour in length. Right. And so this show more or less follows that trend. It's an hour-long show, and most of it was a, captured on tape. That is amazing. That's an early document. When I heard the other day that there was actually a recording of it, it was astonishing. Yeah, Mark Lewison calls it the very first known show in almost its entirety recorded in England. You know, there's some cavern stuff, and there's certainly little bitty things, but yeah. in its entirety, it may well be. Yeah, so you get all the stage patter and the reactions from the audience, and pretty cool. And that, too, is pretty amazing. The Please Please Me album had been out a week, and on this tape, you can hear the boys calling out for requests <laughs> off of the album, and it's like, they knew the record. Already, yeah. Tell me about this. They basically are taking requests. I've never heard anything like it. Boys shout out, you know, do please please me or something, and so they do please please me. John Bloomfeld is the name of the fellow who was the uh, stage manager for the Stowe School, and he actually was the one who managed to get a mic up there and get this thing recorded. Right. He comments, Moore's made back his 100 pounds and more. <laughs> he apparently made about 50 pounds off of this show. Pretty cool. That's a, a young entrepreneur, a young Brian Epstein. And then second off, it bought in the girls. I mean, it was a boys' school, and the majority of the audience were boys, but uh, he mentioned that, oh, yeah, in the back, there were some screaming girls. <laughs> That's great. It looks like an all-male audience, but yeah. there were the daughters of some of the Well, it's an all-male audience because it's a boys' school only. Yeah, but there were some girls at the back. There were there? some girls what which happened? we didn't notice, and it wasn't till they started playing that we heard the screaming and we realized we were in the middle of Be Beatlemania. It was just something we'd never even vaguely experienced. Not enough to drown out the show, but there were some, and, well, I'm sure the boys appreciated that. Yeah, right. It'll be interesting to find out when the screaming really started. Probably not be until really She Loves You. Yeah, I would, I would think it would be after She Loves You. Probably late summer is when the screaming really ramped up. We we know by the fall it was clearly there. Yeah, I'm sure it'll be Lewison's book. <laughs> so we came to learn about this because the BBC was doing a 30-minute feature on the show. And so, you know, they went around and interviewed people, and the, the reporter from the BBC happened to come upon Bloomfeld. He said, oh, by the way, I have a tape of the show. <laughs> That's right. She was just absolutely flabbergasted, and then she apparently got a hold of Mark Lewison, who happened to be in the states because well right he was so. at the fest and so apparently he also got to hear the tape i expect his first word for what <laughs> well there's a chapter i'm gonna have to rewrite <laughs> or add another 15 pages here we have at stowe them doing some of those what we think of as bbc numbers the shot of rhythm and blues memphis tennessee We don't know what's going to happen to it, but 
A, I can't imagine that someone's not going to pony up for this tape. Right. That's literally probably a multi hundred thousand dollar tape right now. Right, which they didn't know, clearly. So now that they've been informed, I'm sure they're going, my gosh, what do I do now? <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, I don't know who I want to buy it. I mean, uh, I really hope we get a bootleg of it first. Right. Shows up on YouTube for free. <laughs> that would be nice. The quality is slightly better than the Star Club. John Bloomfield, who obviously made the recording, was listening to it with us when he played it to us, said, actually, if you listen carefully, you can hear these terribly cut glass accents going, a taste of honey. Boys call out numbers from the audience and they do. Um, and I, I thought that was interesting for what it reveals about how well-known their music was, considering there was no commercial pop radio easily available. Listening to Radio Luxembourg on your radio at night was done quite illicitly at that school. The album has only come out a week earlier. Were you surprised at how many requests there were made and how well that some of these boys seem to know the band's music? I was very impressed with that. I'm very impressed. The Please Please Me LP came out on March 22. So this is only two weeks later, and not everyone buys it on release date, let's face it. So the fact that anyone in the audience knew it, knew it well enough to call out for, for numbers, was impressive. But it must have been one of the quietest concerts that the Beatles ever played live. In fact, I think Paul says that it was the only concert after the release of Love Me Do where they could hear themselves sing and play their instruments. During that concert, uh, he turned to John, he said, we're a damn good band, aren't we? <laughs> it's not a high-fidelity recording, but there's definitely some detail there. Yeah, when Peter Jackson hasn't got it yet. So, <laughs> Well, there you go. That's what I want to see. I, w I want to want this put into the hands right. of the professionals. And le let's demix this and see what happens. I mean, we've already heard how much better the Star Club can sound. And starting off where it is, you know, it's not going to be a studio recording, but it's certainly going to be entirely right. listenable. I'm not sure it'll be like, it's so clear you can hear the jelly babies hit the floor. <laughs> well, were they throwing them at them yet? These were boys, and this was a slightly prim and proper boarding school. Yeah, probably not. There's a couple of comments that Lewison did have from the day. He mentions that the Beatles got to go and tour the boys' dormitories. And John Lennon's comment was, what a dump this is. Now, this is after Hamburg, mind you, so it couldn't have been too palatious. And the Gambier Terrace, oh my gosh. <laughs> and I don't think he was being sarcastic. It's like, uh, <laughs> all right. Yeah. And the rooms in those days were, were pretty grotty. And uh, apparently uh, John turned around to Paul and said, um, I thought we lived in dumps, uh, but this is just horrible. <laughs> so the, the rooms at Stowe have upgraded a bit that was since my, 1960. My study was in the colonnade, and I can absolutely attest that they were horrible. And that he was also uh, amused by they had faux marble columns in this building. <laughs> he said something along the lines of, that looks like painted <laughs> corned beef hash because, you know, it's, it, it was just kind of a thin veneer over and, you know, it gave it some texturing. And we have some photos of them looking at some of these columns, but you can't really tell from the photos. But I, I can see what he was saying. John Lennon's immediate comment was, my God, he said, those columns look like they're made out of corned beef. 
Which I guess they do now, I think. Well, I now cannot think of them as being anything, anything other else. than. Uh, anything else. Scaglioni is an old marble technique that was used very much in Georgian times to give the impression of being marble, because the reality is, if these had been solid marble, the mind boggles, even the Dukes of Buckingham probably wouldn't have run to that. This way, you can make them out of plaster and then put a thin coat of what looks like marble, Scaglioni, on the top of it. And it was quite a well-known technique at the time. So that's what the columns are. Yeah. And when the Beatles saw them... Yeah, they said, they look like corned beef, <laughs> which, given they're about the colour of corned beef, yeah, I suppose they do a bit, really, yes. Well, it, it was a British public school, right? It's a boarding school. Still, best and the brightest of young Britain in... <laughs> 1963. So when they actually matriculate up, that's probably late 60s. Yeah, that explains it. <laughs> the radio program, which includes the excerpts, has now been put on YouTube, and you can find it in lots of places. And we're all just sitting here chomping at the bit, waiting for something more from this tape. Right. And then, then the final thing I want to say is we love the BBC performances, but they just kicked butt live even in front of a school full of boys you know we get just enough of sar standing there john we're trying to recreate the level of sounds that you experienced in that concert by playing your clip through the loudspeaker system in the roxy theater now and you've been told by the engineer to put your volume up to maximum we are turning it up to 11 <laughs> Probably that was about the quality we heard it out, actually. Also, I don't suspect we probably heard it much better than that. Was it a bit emotional for you to hear yes, it again? Yes, I, 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 there was a moment there, I have to say. I Strange. Feel, I feel there's like a time's arrow moment of, yes. you know, us being here almost exactly yes. 60 years later it's, and hearing the original sound of that concert yes. amplified as close as we could to the sound you heard. And you were out there and you, you were gesturing to me while we were listening to it. You were all sitting there with your arms folded yes, tightly. yes. <laughs> Why? WTF, I think, is the current <laughs> expression. We simply didn't know what was going on, and that gave you an idea of why. And please, please me, and money, and in particular, too much monkey business. Yeah. them you get just enough to be able to tell wow this blows the bbc even the best of the bbc stuff just out of the water and it's always a little bit more that's going to come out in any live For performance sure. it is a live performance so, so there, you get that energy and so it benefits from that as mentioned you know you got the boys calling out stuff to them and they are actually playing whatever is being requested although i mean you know, it still more or less follows their set list right. and it was part of what they would have been doing anyway, probably, right. but still. The order likely changed because you've got people calling out 
a taste of honey. On to our topic for the week. Well, we're talking about Beatlemania. <laughs> I kind of wanted to talk about the American singles this week. You know, we always talk about the difference between the British and the American albums, but the Americans also released a fairly unique slate of singles, although they got most of the British singles here. I think. Yeah, I recognize that the way the Beatles came across the United States was different in the way the singles came out. There were more singles in America than in Britain, and it shaped the way you heard the band. And, and the other thing about the singles, of course, is that all those singles were on the radio. And that's where a lot of people heard this music. And, of course, the radio would play album cuts. I've read so many stories about people who didn't really even necessarily know what the singles well, were. Well, that wasn't my experience or anybody I've ever talked to because it was all about the radio. And, and you know, I never heard not a second time until much later. So, you know, first off, they did actually get the first couple singles released in the States more or less on time. You know, My Bonnie was actually released here in April of 1962, which is a little bit weird. I mean, Tony Sheridan wasn't really a known quantity in the States, but maybe Deck is better about, okay, we'll release whatever you tell us to release. Not all companies were like Capital. <laughs> yes, agreed. Uh, but still, it's a little bit weird. It's like, he, here's somebody who has no name recognition in the States. And if you're not going to push it at all, this single's not going to go anywhere. Why are you going to bother even pressing up some copies? But okay. But it's it's unique and it's actually a fairly rare single if you can find an original. I bet. <laughs> One of the Beatles' rarest records of all time is the first US pressing of My Bonnie, which was released on Decca on April the 23rd, 1962. This was in fact the first single released by the Beatles in the United States but of course was a complete flop, and today counterfeits way outnumber genuine copies. Of course, it was a different story in January 1964 when MGM issued it on their label. That pressing ended up selling 300,000 copies, getting it to number 26 in the charts. This picture of the original Decca 45 was sent in to us by Mike, who tells me that it's the rarer Pickneyville, Illinois pressing, of which less than 10 with this label variation are known to exist. Now, he purchased this 45 back in the summer of 2011 from a Beatles collector in New Jersey for $1,850. Unfortunately, it was in poor condition with lots of scratches on both sides and a small crack to the edge. It even had a small warp, which was meticulously repaired. It was re-released uh, in January of 64, so there are lots of those around. Yeah, lots being a relative term. So EMI, once rejected from Capital went through Transglobal, which was more or less the American, oh, well, Capital doesn't want them, we'll find some place to put out these records. And that's how they ended up on VJ. Which is kind of known as the jazz label. Before Motown, there was an African-American husband and wife team who turned a mom and pop record label into one of the most successful stories in music history. Based in Chicago, Illinois, Vivian Carter and Jimmy Bracken built a mini empire, rich with talent. VJ had... The Beatles singles in 63. February of 63, they did release Please Please Me and Ask Me Why. And while it didn't sell tremendously well, it did manage to get a little tiny bit of traction in the States. If you say so. <laughs> in Chicago. 
Joe. The birds is coming. 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 This is Alfred Hitchcock. Watch out for the birds. Yes, a universal international picture. And we'll be back with the top three phone requests. say so because it showed up on three or four regional charts, including the bottom end of the KNUZ charts right here in Houston. It sold less than 10,000 copies, but there were radio stations who were playing it at the time. I don't see it really having an impact, nor did it please anybody in England. <laughs> that I would agree with. It's not like it was a big deal. I mean, you know, even if there was larger markets showing up in the lower end of a handful of charts in even a handful of major cities is like, oh, well, that's nice. The truth is they're good records. And so I'm not surprised they got some interest. It'd be hard to really say, well, they really got something because they really didn't. I'm not making any claims that there was any real interest in the Beatles beyond a curiosity at this point. Right. The story that is told frequently is that the radio folks the programmers all thought that they were black group the black beatles <laughs> yeah i guess so so they played it on that basis it's like oh well okay you know since it was the lower reaches it wasn't heavy rotation but it did get some airplay i'll give you that point but, but you also have to remember that please please me and from me to you those two songs which were released as a single would be re-released as a single together in 64 so that when you see VJ getting to number three with Please Please Me, it wasn't this record. It wasn't the record as is. And we'll get to that. So, yeah, For Me to You also came out. And to your point, Please Please Me didn't make enough of a dent with the programmers that they would have picked up For Me to You. So VJ was like, eh, I don't think we want to release anymore. And Swan came into the picture for She Loves You. Yeah, although I have read that because those two singles didn't sell, that it was Epstein who was interested in moving it to another label. No royalties have been paid on Frank Ifield's I Remember You, and no royalties have been paid on the Beatle records. And so EMI unilaterally terminates its contract with VJ for Frank Ifield and the Beatles and demands that VJ, you know, return the metal part, destroy the metal parts, and don't put out any more records. And at this point, is Capital kind of sniffing around for the Beatles or nope. lamenting nope. it? Or, okay. Nope. 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 Capital has offered Frank Ifield's I'm Confessing and the Beatles She Loves You. And Dave Dexter at Capital listens to both and determines that one of them is not suitable for the American market and one of them is going to be a big hit. And so Capital takes out a full page ad and billboard for I'm Confessing by Frank Ifield <laughs> and passes on She Loves You. So at this time, you know, they need to find a label for She Loves You. Swan Records had a working relationship with EMI, and their owner, Bernie Bennett, had been in the U.K. negotiating deals with Stateside to have Freddie Cannon and other records go out in the U.K., and he was familiar with the Beatles. So when he's offered the Beatles, he jumps at it, and EMI offers him a deal 
So she loves you. I'll get you in September of 63, which also went nowhere. Yes, but that single was reissued in January of 64 and went to number one. How quickly things change. Thanks, Capital. <laughs> <laughs> you look at where we've been so far. It's interesting that these singles were to a certain extent, driven by a business decision. And we'll see more business decision just resulting in single releases from Capital right. very soon. I don't think VJ necessarily cared about the artistic merit. It's just like, oh, okay, fine. Maybe it'll make us some money. Yeah, <laughs> because money was the point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. And the story moves on, and they finally convince Capital to do it. The Beatles are coming although not quite yet, and Capital decides they're going to put out the first single, I Want to Hold Your Hand, but they changed the B-side. They backed it up with Solar Standing there. Yes, rightly so. Absolutely. Good choice. Who did that? Dave Dexter? Maybe. I think that that single is just kick-ass. You have this one song, which was aimed at the American market. And then on the flip side, you put that killer intro to their album in, in Britain. What could be better than I saw her standing there? You know, the American market would have been like, eh, this boy, who cares? Eh. Well, and originally it was supposed to be January 64 release in preparation for the Sullivan show, but the demand had grown so high that they went in and pressed the thing the day after Christmas. Yep. December 26th, 1963, that's when that single hit the world. And, you know, I, the Marsha Albert, Washington, D.C. thing had already happened by this point. So people n were starting to know of the song. For sure. And Sullivan was getting his machinery in motion. As was Capital. It was a great push, for sure. We see... All that Capital did in first U.S. visit. Right. That mechanical head nodding thing is like, they put some engineering <laughs> into that. They went whole hog on promoting them for sure. You know, the funny thing is, again, I'm sure Lewis will tell us, but there are always rumors that kids were let out of school to hit the airports. And then there are other people who said, no, of course, they school wasn't going to let them out for that. And I don't really know. Well, and some of the more cynical people say that Capital greased the palms of some of those kids. <laughs> right. Yeah. There was a crowd that was coming, but Capital wanted it to be overwhelming. <laughs> so, you know, there's there's no records of buses being <laughs> chartered to go out to, uh, was it Kennedy yet or was it still Idlewild? It was rededicated in honor of our slain president, John F. Kennedy, in December 1963. But, you know, that's in the face of one of the reasons why Sullivan was so impressed was when he was in England, the the uh, the airport reception. So, you know, to say, well, this one was a pay for it and this and this wasn't It's like, eh, maybe I don't know. I think it was pretty authentic. On October 31st, 1963, Sullivan and his wife were at the London airport. It was an unusually busy day at the airport, with the Prime Minister due to fly out, and contestants for the Miss World contest being held that year in London arriving. Although the city was experiencing a heavy rainstorm that day, more than 1,500 youngsters lined the rooftop gardens of the Queen's building and others congregated on the ground. 
Sullivan asked what all the commotion was about and was informed that it was for the Beatles, who were returning from a tour of Sweden. He replied, who the hell are the Beatles? Sullivan was told that the Beatles were a well-known pop group. Sullivan would later claim that the incident caused him to immediately inquire into booking the Beatles on his show. Hot on the heels of Capitol making this splash. I mean, we know that Introducing came back and there was a race between those two albums. The kids were going back and forth. If they couldn't buy both, they were buying one and then buying the other. For sure. And it was kind of weird because the VJ label looked like the Capitol label. The colored rainbow swirl around the edge. Yeah. And as a kid, what else are you looking at anyway? I mean, it was kind of confusing and it wasn't kind of really explained to me until the early Beatles came out. And I went, oh. So you're old enough to actually remember seeing the VJ releases at the time of. I had those releases. Oh, did you? Okay. I didn't have the singles, but I had the, the album. Very cool. VJ did decide to follow, and in part, this is why 59 years ago, I guess, the Beatles were able to hold the top five spots in the Billboard charts. Right. But some of my friends, I can remember them being confused. Where was, do you want to know a secret? You know, it was on the VJ album, but not many people had that. In January, VJ re-released Please Please Me, and as you mentioned it, they followed Capitals Lead. They changed the B-side right. to For Me to You. So. And it got to number three on the charts. And we should mention that since Capital had accepted the deal finally from EMI, VJ was allowed to release only what they already had access to, which was right. basically the introducing album. So in February, February the 20th of 1964, right in the middle of the uh, Ed Sullivan shows, Twist and Shout and There's a Place was released on Tolly. Tolly was a subsidiary of VJ. Right. And that got to number two. It's funny to think that it wasn't on Capitol and it got that high in the charts. Did anybody care about the label at that point? No. <laughs> Absolutely not. It's the Beatles. Which is why all those other things flourished. The Hollywood strings or the bands that you'd see drawings of Beatle haircuts on the front cover. But it had nothing to do with the Beatles, but it had the Beatles name or the B-E-E-T. You know, there's lots of records that came in. People bought them because it was like, you just bought Beatles stuff. That and grandmas were easily fooled. Exactly. <laughs> right. I can remember one time getting your records like, oh, thanks. <laughs> I mean, I forget what it was. It got tossed years ago. In March of 64, there was Do You Want to Know a Secret back by Thank You Girl. As a single. Uh -huh. You know, as we were saying, VJ could release nothing else. And the deal also had a hard limit on when they could release Beatle records. So it's like, yeah, we're going to put out as many as we possibly can in every possible configuration. <laughs> right. Well, this one got to number two. And then in the middle of this, we got a Canadian single, Roll Over Beethoven, which also charted. It had a picture sleeve and it had the capital swirl right. on it. It was capital of Canada. If you didn't know, it's like, okay, right. well, that's the next single. I don't think I ever saw it here in Texas. I don't think it would have gotten this far. I don't think it would have gotten much further than, you know, Washington and Philadelphia and yeah. the, the Northeast, basically. Capital U.S. put a stop right. to it. Is why this song is so familiar to everybody, I think. You know, Capital wasn't going to release it. 
Although they would soon enough because that would become part of the oldies longer singles. Right. It's hard to believe, you know, that's not even 18 months later that, that oh, here here's the oldies line <laughs> of singles. We're going to put them right back out again so you can buy them with a new label and a new sleeve. Did you get your lads? <laughs> <laughs> MGM and Decca also decided to cash in on this. The Tony Sheridan stuff all came out as singles. We got Why and Cry for a Shadow. And I have to say, Why? <laughs> wasn't the Beatles the the flip side was but I think it got to number 88 yeah I mean it wasn't a big hit but again enough to chart yeah (laughs) then Tali released Love Me Do on April and it had a nice picture sleeve right April the 27th 1964 Love Me Do back with P.S. I Love You that was the British single basically but it got to number one then in May Swan had the smart idea. Well, we've already issued She Loves You twice. So what we're going to do is we're going to put out Sie Liebdich. Right. We're going to put out the German version. Sie Liebdich, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> Got to, to number 97. <laughs> you wouldn't expect it to make a big splash, but it's enough to chart again in a very competitive market. Yeah, although, you know, anything that's that low, on, I mean, yeah, it's on a chart, but it's only because they have a top 100. I can't say that anybody ever heard it really well not anybody but yeah i don't think it would have gotten huge amounts of radio play except as a novelty we sell seven or eight thousand copies and that's not even enough to get to bubbling under on any of the and remember there were three major charts at the time right right everything just about would have gotten to bubbling under status on billboard or cashbox and And she loves you had been number one song a few months before so that is totally a gimmick record a foreign thing yeah no 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 since it's in german i guess it (laughs) is a foreign thing isn't it was that the first time we'd heard that zee liebdick didn't show up until the 80s in rarities okay it was come give me a dying hand that was on uh that was on something new (laughs) nothing new as the ruddles put it in liverpool she even dared to criticize the beatles hair with their whole fan club standing there I mean, sweet George Brown. All right. I say this group is absolutely marvelous for the piano. Don't you think so? Not too commercial, boys. Not too commercial. So MGM and Decca had had their fill of it. A Beatles single? Uh, that's pushing it. Sweet Georgia Brown and Take Out Some Insurance Baby came out on the Atco label. I mean, the next one that they put out is almost legitimate, yes. And that was Ain't She Sweet, back with Nobody's Child, which George would do many, many, many years later with the Wilburys. But Ain't She Sweet, the interesting thing about that was that it was clearly John's voice. But it was confusing to my nine-year-old ears because it was clearly the Beatles, but not their sound. And so it was kind of a weird thing to hear in mid-64. So now we come upon the second tremendous business decision, which resulted in a number of strange and unusual Beatles singles. The Hard Day's Night soundtrack 
included some songs which Capitol was not allowed to issue as an album. Because that contract had gone to United Artists, which was why they agreed to finance the film in the first place. So uh, Capitol had the choice of releasing things as singles. Yeah, the, there was a loophole in that contract. It was only in the form of a soundtrack album they weren't allowed to release it. They could release the songs in other ways. So it's like, okay, we're going to put out all the unique songs as singles. Right. And the non-unique songs ended up being on something new. They both got their Dexterized <laughs> album and they got some extra singles. Although putting them all out together didn't help get them higher on the charts. Correct. July the 13th, 1964, Hard Day's Night and I Should Have Known Better. It's obvious they replaced the B-side because Things We Said Today wasn't in the film. But is it to the detriment of the single? Oh. I mean, I Should Have Known Better is, is a great song, but I prefer Things We Said Today of the two. And I think the contrast is what makes that an interesting single. You know, you, you got two pop rock songs with John Lennon singing lead as a single. Well, except that to my ear, I should have known better was clearly written with the idea of it being a single and things we said today is not. So you have two songs that were kind of uh, aimed at that. I think I have no problem with this single at all. I like things we said today. I don't, you know, I'm not saying it's a bad single. You have to remember that we have completely different views of the singles. I came upon the singles more as a collector on the other end of things. You know, once everything was already out there and the singles were, oh, well, that's cool. That's curious. Right. That's a neat collectible. I, I didn't think of them so much in terms of, oh, it's this pairing and here's how they're going to do on the charts. Right. Well, I came to those thoughts much later once I got to know the record industry some. You know, these songs and these singles hit me at the time as being, at first, great pop music and then artistic statements. As far as Hard Day's Night, I should have known better. Both joyous and... They're both great songs. And if it were me, I would have just had them split them out as two different singles. Well, they didn't have that many songs, although, I don't know, would you have, like, Hard Day's Night and, you know, because of all those songs, only McCartney sings And I Love Her, and that's it. Well, they could have gone back to their old ways and put Can't Buy Me Love out again on the B-side. Well, it's true. It's in the film as well. So not only did they release that as a single, they released two more singles. They did. The next week, on the 20th of July, 1964... I'll Cry Instead back with uh, Happy Years to Dance with You. Now, I'll Cry Instead had been cut out of the film, but I guess it was still included as film music. Yeah, I don't know what the contractual thing said. It was part of the soundtrack right. album, so... It didn't get very high. Years later, that would be the uh, opening when they reissued <laughs> right. the film, and they created a little music video for it and put that right in front. Which was always a big mistake, because there's nothing better than Hard Day's Night opening with that black screen and the cord. Oh yeah, for sure. The single didn't go anywhere. This was a case of even the Beatles could have too much product in the market at any one time. And the fact that the album was out there, so. And there was another single that came out right after that. Yep. Uh, and I Love Her back right. with If I Fell. I remember, this is a, a kind of a personal memory of hearing and i love her on the radio and i was really happy about that because it showcased 
a different side of the Beatles. I wanted my mom <laughs> to like this song. And so I think having it out as a single served that crafting of the Beatles image. Yeah, it's kind of an extension of the, oh, we're going to do Till There Was You or we're going to do uh, yeah. <laughs> the Honeymoon song. Yeah, it's that ballad style that's really nice. And If I Fell, of course, is gorgeous. I guess Capital, they were just, we want these songs out on Capital. They didn't so much care as long as they sold enough to make them back their money. They, they weren't looking for a huge profit off of these right. extra singles. Next in August... You know, August, we're talking about a month later. There were three Beatles singles at the end of July, and we're going to come out with another one in August. That's why that generation was broke for a long time. (laughs) (laughs) We get Matchbox and Slow Down. Right. I actually would have probably flipped the sides. Oh, I would have too. Nothing on Ringo, but... It's not because I don't like Ringo. It's not because I don't like the performance. It's just Slow Down is, as we were talking about with that Stowe School performance, that's John Lennon at his best. Great record. And Matchbox being the A-side, it got to number 17. We have a little bit of a gap here before the next set of singles, and this is where those oldies singles came in. But there was one which a lot of people really liked, Boys in Kansas City. I guess it's kind of modeled on this single. Uh, You know, you got a Ringo song, and then you got a belting rocker on the other side, this time being Paul. Yeah, but all four of those songs are not Lennon McCartney. Well, after the Hard Day's Night album, and of course Capitol didn't care about this, but artistically they had already proven that they were songwriters. Yes, indeed. For anyone who cared about such thing, there you go. Right. Okay, now we start getting into the actual unique singles that Capitol would make for no apparent reason. Yeah, I suppose. Everything to this point has been permutations or as in the hard days night singles something released because they have an ulterior motive here we're actually getting to oh here are some extra singles which weren't chosen as singles by the beatles and we're going to put them out they kind of went away to shape how the beatles were viewed in the united states and i guess it would be part of that same contract that they signed that the albums would follow the british listings that the singles would also follow the British listings, although I still got one question about that, which we'll get to shortly here. <laughs> okay. The first of these was Eight Days a Week, back with I Don't Want to Spoil the Party. This is kind of the magical mystery tour of singles in that I think the Beatles kind of wish they'd released it as a single. Oh, you think? You look at what they did on one. They constructed a unique video for it, which is still the only place we can get the highest of resolution Shea Stadium footage. When you consider the single that had come out, which was uh, I Feel Fine and She's a Woman, I think that had a certain edge to both those songs, actually, that Eight Days a Week was kind of like, and here come the old Beatles again, the pop Beatles. Um, Kind of, but still, it is very definitely a step forward in their songwriting. It is a newer thing, but the song itself is... In structure, I will agree, it is more or less along the lines of the 64 singles. And lyrically, ooh, I need your love, babe. Guess you know it's true. I mean, it's very uh, thank you, girl, kind of. I mean, it's... But the production takes it a step further. Yeah, because they were those people at that point. So yes, that's true. But the style of the song is an older thing. So I don't know that they would have been all that enthusiastic about eight days a week. 
it did get to number one, and like I say, 30 years later, 35 years later, they were all too happy to acknowledge it as a single in the canon. Because of these differences, not so much one, but the two 20 greatest hits albums between U.S. and U.K. are fairly different. Right. You know. So the next one is another one that has to be recognized as something that the Beatles considered, although this is one they never would have considered as a single at the time. Yesterday and Act Naturally. Yeah, who put that together? That's a weird pairing of songs. But it got to number one. It probably made it because of Act Naturally. <laughs> you think? Yeah. Yesterday was a big deal. And of course, Capital then took it entirely wrong. And it's like, ooh, let's make a Paul McCartney <laughs> solo album. Right. I can't believe they even considered that. And that was all on the back of Yesterday, really. Correct. In 66... We get Nowhere Man and What Goes On. They love putting Ringo on these singles, don't they? <laughs> well, of course, Ringo was the most popular Beatle at the time still. And that, too, is a strange pairing of disparate songs. I found that Nowhere Man, with that guitar, 12-string sound, very birds-ish, wasn't on Rubber Soul. Because our Rubber Soul was the Wooden Smoke album. And so... The fact that Nowhere Man came out in 66 really kind of put them on the edgy part of American pop music. I had no idea it had come out months before. As Dylan went electric, it's almost the Beatles going folk a little bit as a singles. So from this point forward, they basically followed the British singles all the way up until the end. (laughs) Yes, and I wonder... Who is behind this single? So in 1970, we get The Long and Winding Road and For You Blue on the Apple label, but only in the U.S. So you put the song as a single, the the song that McCartney most took umbrage with, put it out as a single, and then in order to feed the, uh, the till, make sure that George has a saw on the back and put it out in the United States. Got to number one. In McCartney Legacy, Cozen has the supposition that Klein did that just to piss off McCartney. Yeah. Paul's in the States. I'm going to make him hear this damn song every 12 minutes. And you know what? The harp is still at the end. (laughs) It's still kind of weird. I mean, even though Klein was in charge, you think it's just the Paul wasn't around and John, George, and Ringo didn't care enough to oversee. I don't know how the artistic decisions were being made at that point. I know that Klein's number one order was make us money. And, of course, in his mind, it was like, make me money. (laughs) Why didn't he pull a single off of the Hey Jude album? I mean, you know, Hey Jude had been a single recently enough, but there certainly was something he could have pulled off of there. Just a thought. Now we kind of move on into the post-era. We want to just sort of briefly touch on some of the later singles. And then in the 90s, for kind of the, the last gasp before the revival, there were two sets of colored jukebox singles. There were 30 of those. And so in 1976, Got to Get You Into My Life, backed by Helter Skelter, yeah. was released. And that managed to climb back onto the charts and do pretty well. Yeah, they played that on the radio a lot. Although the story there is Helter Skelter had apparently started to get airplay after the book about (laughs) the Manson murders. 
Well, this was a uh, definition of helter-skelter that, uh, that Charlie gave. Now, if you look at this white album, it's a Beatles album, there are many other songs. One of them is called Sexy Sadie. Sadie Atkin, or Sadie Glutz, also known as Susan Atkins, whatever you want to call her, she thought that the Beatles named this song after her. There's also a song called Piggies. There's also a song... in the helter-skelter song? Nothing particularly in that song right there, except the definition that Manson gave of it. There's another song in that same album called Blackbirds, talking about blackbirds fixing their wings and rising up. Charles Manson said the blackbird uh, meant the black man. And so the original intent was to have Helter Skelter on the A side. You know, it's already getting airplay, and someone at Capitol decided, well, that might not be the uh. classiest way to start up a Beatles 1976 thing. Yeah, I don't remember ever hearing it, Helter Skelter, on the radio. It was always hmm. got to get you in my life. Then you get a single, which I find a little bit weird, from 78, Sgt. Pepper and With a Little Help on the A-side and Day in the Life on the B-side. <laughs> the Alpha and the Omega of Sgt. Pepper. Why? <laughs> they were trying to promote Pepper at the time. I mean, we're on the cusp of the Pepper film. Yeah, baby. It climbed all the way to 71. People were taking some notice. Then in 82, we got what I guess we'd have to call the last original <laughs> Beatles single until Free as a Bird and Real Love. The dreaded movie medley. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's about all we have to say about that. Well, we probably should say it had Magical Mystery Tour, All You Need Is Love, Hide Your Love Away, Should Have Known Better, Hard Day's Night, Ticket to Ride, and Get Back. With the tempos messed with terribly in between. Because they had to keep a beat. You know, they had to keep a, a tempo all the way through. And so they they messed with all sorts of... It was terrible. Were you amused by the Stars on 45 thing, which this, of course, is based on? Was I amused? Yes. I liked it all right. It was like a, you know, it was an early matchup. <laughs> the only thing about it is it starts with the Archies. Why they're going to do a Beatles medley and start it off with the Archies. The playing on it is pretty good. Stars on 45, that is. Although apparently the deal was that a DJ had actually stitched a version together off of the real Beatles versions. And that's why the Archies are at the front of that. Because they were on the original version of that and and so that since they couldn't release it that way they got uh beetle band and their john lennon has a slight but fairly distinct accent in right. there that went pretty high in the charts yeah. stars on 45 again the movie medley was well got to number 12 almost to the top 10 which is inexplicable. <laughs> then you have the fact of the two B-sides on there. They originally had an interview from the set of Hard Day's Night, and then they decided to replace it. There's Happy Just to Dance with You back again. <laughs> right. Making it a collectible. <laughs> so the weird thing about that interview, if you happen to find it on YouTube and listen to it, is that John was not there on the day, and they edited... <laughs> Just a tiny bit of John Lennon from somewhere else. So you have all four Beatles talking on this thing. Right. Hard day's nice. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hello. Is Paul speaking? Paul McCartney. This is Ringo Starr. George Harrison. Mm, da, 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 da. 
Hey, Paul, tell them about the songs and all that. You know, the title song is, is one that we particularly like. John and I wrote this especially for the film because, <laughs> I mean, with a title like that, you, you couldn't write it for anything else, I don't think. So that leaves us with what we had mentioned earlier. In the 90s, Capitol released 30 individually colored jukebox singles, some of which had unique pairings, and they have gone on to become tremendous collectibles. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) That is very definitely just kind of a money-making scheme, but you want to know where McCartney got it from? (laughs) There's where the idea came from. I don't know if the idea, the fact that somebody was actually making money off of it, (laughs) that's what, oh my God, really? Some of the singles we get in there, we get Magical Mystery Tour back with Fool on the Hill. We get Across the Universe back with Two of Us. We get While My Guitar Gently Weeps back with Blackbird. We get It's All Too Much back with Only a Northern Song. That is admittedly a cool pairing. I don't have a jukebox. But you could play a Blue Vinyl 45 if you wanted to. Right. And if you had it. Yeah, there are other ways I could do that. Lucy in the Sky back with When I'm 64. Here, There, and Everywhere back with Good Day Sunshine. Obla Dee, Obla Da back with Julia. So, I mean, you know, there are some interesting pairings. So they were all on the Purple Capital label, and the colors ranged from blue to white to transparent blue to pink to transparent yellow to clear. All the colors that McCartney would later use for the various versions of McCartney 3. Not really worth mentioning for creative reasons, but it is a collectible, and a lot of people do really like them. Where would you find them? Apparently, like, 22 of them are fairly common. There are about eight of them which you have to go and look for. Obviously, they never really went into jukeboxes. They were manufactured as collectibles. My favorite thing. But they did come with with a little jukebox tag that could have been appended to your jukebox if you wanted to. But they were sold through resellers. Nowadays, you can usually find them in lots on eBay. That makes sense. People are usually selling four, five, six of them at a time. Right. So I, you know, most people will, who want them will definitely get to the twenty-two or twenty-three that are common, and then you have to really want to go find the other eight. Right. Put it together with your collection of Beatle monthlies. So, <laughs> there you have it. So there are the U.S. singles. You know, as we were saying earlier, since we did get most of the British singles, kind of the extras, the unique singles that we got did alter the way we viewed the band, particularly in cases like Eight Days a Week and then Yesterday. The timing of them, Yesterday coming out in mid-summer, I believe it was. In Britain, it had been out with the soundtrack. It hit America differently. I think Nowhere Man's the same way. Nowhere Man is probably looked at more or less the same on both sides of the pond, but I still think yesterday is more of an American thing than it is a a British thing. Well, because it was uh, released as a single, it became a more important song. In Britain, it was on side two of Help. You know, I don't think they had the same impact. And you can see why, based strictly upon that, Capital would come up with this cockamamie idea of oh well let's do a paul mccartney solo album (laughs) right we still don't actually know what they were really thinking whether they were just going to pair mccartney vocals together uh, of a certain style or whether they were actually going to try and get paul to 
re-record some of them. Or or maybe do some cover material. He seemed open to that, you know, he's with uh Till There Was You. Can you imagine the reception it would have been if that came out at the same time as Love in the Open Air while there are all these right. the Beatles are breaking up rumors while they were working on Pepper? Right. That would have been something <laughs> to see. But well, that has nothing to do with singles. So, you know, there, there's kind of our look at the U.S. singles, and I do think that the singles that we got affected our view of the band in much the same way that the albums did. And well, I mean, it's that uniqueness is being lost a little bit in the homogenization of the catalog. Capital has more or less. I won't say disowned, but with a handful of exceptions, decided the American singles just weren't worth bringing forward for nostalgia purposes. Yeah, you know, they, they've had releases of Capitol albums. Don't know how they view the singles as unique items. For me, it's, it's mainly the timing of when they came out. Although I will say, I do find it a little bit funny that they're going to reproduce the singles and they're not going to put a capital sleeve on the one that they chose to represent the United (laughs) States. Yeah. So, all right. There you go. If you haven't listened to it, go and find the uh, British show. As I mentioned, it is on YouTube. It is very definitely worth hearing uh, what we currently have available of that Stowe School show. And we will... Be back with a new show next week. Yes, yes. Thanks so much, everybody. Take care. Talk to you soon. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by J. Young Kim. Beast or Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. So with uh, with Capital uh, in the picture, do you think that if they had taken up the first singles, Love Me Do, Please Please Me, uh, do you think they would have treated the Beatles with the same sort of care that they exhibited from Meet the Beatles on? No. Uh, I think that if Love Me Do had come out, it would have probably been a flop. Um, even Please Please Me may have not been much more successful than it was on VJ. And Capital may not have even bothered to put out from me to you at that point. Would have basically told EMI, look, we know our market and you don't. And, you know, the U.S. would have been listening to Bobby V throughout the entire 60s. And no British invasion ever would have happened. I think it's a good thing Capital did not put out those early records. Uh, just as, look, what was the Beatles' greatest failure? Obviously, right? The DECA session. They got turned down. Mm-hmm. What if the Beatles had been signed by DECA? No George Martin. Mike Smith produces them. Their first single could have been Love of the Love Back with Red Sails in the Sunset. Beatles never make it big. Who knows? We don't know. So things, I think, work out really well in that regard. Um, so I'm glad things happened the way they happened. Uh, 
and by having the Beatles on three labels in January of 64, you know, that wouldn't have happened. You wouldn't have had three incredible songs come out at the same time, but for the fact they were on three different labels that signed records over a period of almost a year. So you had, as you like to say, the perfect storm. And in this case, it really was perfect. And none of this would have worked out that way if Capitol had put out those early records. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned up nice again. Hey, hey.